0: So, as I was saying, in my preaching program, I usually like to be in the Old Testament leading up to Christmas, and then in the Epistles leading up to Easter, and then, or in the Gospels, rather, leading up to Easter, and then after Easter in the Epistles, and seeing as we are approaching Christmas, only 64 days away, I am told, I thought we would spend a few weeks then in the Old Testament. And I'd like us to look at one of the most well-known books in the Old Testament, I say that the book is well-known, but probably it is the story that is best known. I think most of us can remember sitting in Sunday school and hearing the story of Jonah and the great fish. It's actually a theme that crops up in our secular world uh, today, too, which can cause a bit of confusion. I remember one general knowledge quiz where a contestant was asked, who, according to the Bible, was swallowed by a whale? And the man thought about it for a while and then confidently replied, Pinocchio. (laughs) Perhaps if you're a bit younger, you might have answered, Nemo and Dory. (laughs) People who know very little about the Bible are probably familiar with this story of Jonah and the great fish. But this isn't simply a book about a man who had a miraculous escape. This is a book about sin and grace. The Bible often describes those topics theologically but here in the book of Jonah they are addressed concretely and personally. As pastor Timothy Keller puts it in his excellent book on Jonah, The Prodigal Prophet, sin is running away from God and grace is God chasing us down, hunting us down in love and intercepting our self-destructive behavior. Sin is running away from God, and grace is God chasing after us. And because this is the human experience, it will be well worth our while spending a few weeks getting to grips, not just with the story, but with the content of the book of Jonah. So let's dive straight in, if you'd pardon the expression, and let's begin by reading just the first five verses of this book, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. And headed for Tarshish, he went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own god, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. This is God's word. So Jonah was a prophet who lived in the northern kingdom of Israel in the 700s B.C. Uh, You may remember that at this point, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's into this northern kingdom of Israel that Jonah is a prophet, uh, a preacher, if you like. Uh, Jeroboam II is the king. And in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14, we read these words. Jeroboam restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. So here you have Jonah and he's preaching to the nation, and under his preaching and his ministry, the nation of Israel expands. Now at this time, the nation of Assyria was the main superpower in that region. They were beginning to take over a number of the other nations in the region, and they were the main threat against Israel and Judah. And one day, out of the blue, God comes to Jonah with a new sermon series and a new congregation that he wants to him to preach it to. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So Nineveh was the capital city of this great Assyrian empire. And God's command to Jonah is actually quite shocking for a number of reasons. Firstly, the fact that God would send one of his prophets to actually visit a foreign nation. Many of the other prophets had preached messages against the nations, so if you look at prophets like Jeremiah or even Nahum, there you have addresses to the other nations, but this is the first time that God is actually sending a prophet to physically get up and go and visit one of these nations. And secondly, it was shocking because the Assyrians were a really, really horrible lot they weren't just gentile pagans but they were a violent warrior people. Um, one writer puts it this way, even with all the cruelty common in ancient times, the Assyrians were considered the most vicious and most cruel of all. Their brutal methods terrified their neighbors. They employed impaling, beheading, sawing people into flaying, boiling in oil and other horrible tortures. They knew that brutality and the terror that that produced was an effective way of defeating other nations. One writer has gone as far as to describe them as being a terrorist state. So just think about what God is asking Jonah to do here. As a pastor, each Sunday I have the wonderful opportunity of coming and addressing you lovely folk here in my sermons. But imagine if God were to tell me to go and visit some of the countries that we pray about on a Wednesday in our our prayer email. Uh, Countries like Syria or North Korea or Afghanistan. Imagine standing uh, in the center of one of those countries and preaching against it in the name of God. So to a certain extent, Jonah's response is a little bit understandable. Verse 3 But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. Now it's here where high school geography really helps, because to understand Jonah's response fully, you need to have a look at a map. God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, which would have been an overland journey uh, towards the northwest of Israel. Um, Nineveh was in modern-day Iraq. Instead of which, Jonah goes down south to the port city of Joppa, that's modern-day Jaffa, uh, south of Tel Aviv, and he books a ticket on a ship that is bound to Tarshish. Now, we're not 100% sure where Tarshish was, but we suspect it was in modern-day Spain. So, instead of heading to Nineveh, Jonah heads to Tarshish. Instead of going over the land, he heads out to sea. Instead of heading east, Jonah heads west. The problem is this isn't just a story about Jonah, is it? It's a story about me and it's a story about you. Jonah's story is our story. Now, Jonah's running away from God was quite literal and easy to see. Our running away from God tends to be a little bit more subtle. So how do I know if I'm running away from God this morning? I think that underneath Jonah's more outward and physical running away, there are several underlying factors, and I think that we can identify these, and if we find them within our own hearts and lives, perhaps we could say that we too are running from God. So let's have a look. Firstly, we find Jonah ignoring God's word. Verses 1 and 3 again. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, but Jonah ran away from the Lord. I think we ignore God's word for a couple of reasons. Certainly Jonah did. Firstly, we sometimes engage in what we could call selective hearing. Uh, some of you have husbands or wives who have selective hearing. You know, When there is talk about moving the dustbins, somehow that gets overlooked. But when there's a call to second helping of pudding, there he is. Remember, though, that up until this point, Jonah has been hearing good things from God his preaching has led to an expansion in the nation. I'm pretty sure that Jonah would have had no problem if God was saying to him, preach to Israel, I love you. Or Jonah, I want you to know that I love you. I want to bless you. I have plans to prosper you. Jonah would have had no problem hearing that. But he definitely chooses to ignore God's words, go to Nineveh. And I wonder if sometimes we're a little bit like that as well. We're Psalm 23 people, the Lord is my shepherd. We're Jeremiah 29 people, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. We're John 3:16, people, for God so loved the world. We like those scriptures and others like them and we spend our time reading them, but are we prepared to hear some of the more difficult things from God's word or do we tend to ignore those bits? A very wise person once said that some people don't read the Bible, not because the Bible contradicts itself, but because the Bible contradicts them. But secondly, we ignore God's word when we think that we know better. Jonah doubted the goodness and the wisdom and the justice of God. He couldn't think of a good reason why God would want him to go to Nineveh, And so he concluded that there couldn't be a good reason. God was wrong. (laughs) And the same is true of us sometimes. God's word seems to be filled with all sorts of commands. And sometimes those commands don't seem to make a lot of sense. And in those times we have to decide, does God know what is best? Or do we? Perhaps we find ourselves in a difficult situation. Uh, Perhaps we're not sure what God is doing and and we know that God wants us to take a particular course of action and we think, no, uh, I I can't trust God in this situation. I can't trust him to do what is right. Uh, All too often we doubt that God is good and that he is committed to, to our best interest and so we go our own way and we ignore his word. You might recall that that was actually the original problem in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? God told Adam and Eve, you're free to eat of any tree in the garden, just don't eat the fruit from that one particular tree in the center of the garden. And what happens? Adam and Eve look at the tree and they look at the fruit and it looks so good. It's beautiful. It looks good for eating. They can't think of a good reason why God would tell them not to eat it. And so they conclude that there isn't a good reason. God is wrong. And so they take and they eat. God couldn't be trusted to have their best interests in mind. Or so they thought. And so sometimes we think. Secondly, we find Jonah being indifferent to the needs of others. He's lost his concern for others. God comes to Jonah and he tells him to preach to the city of Nineveh, and all that Jonah can see is a nation full of fierce, bloodthirsty, horrible, violent people. God, however, has a very different picture of these folk. Uh, towards the end of the book, in chapter 4, Uh, God says these words to Jonah. He says, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? God was concerned about these people, even if Jonah wasn't. You may remember how Jesus saw the crowds as well. The disciples saw the crowds and saw a lot of problems. Jesus looks at the crowds in Matthew chapter 9 and we read that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. When we lose our love for the people around us, when we don't see people as human beings made in the image of God, people for whom Jesus died, when we start beginning to feel feelings of animosity and even hatred towards others who are different from us or who are doing evil things, when that starts to happen, it's an indication to me that I need to return to God. I've lost connection with God because He is merciful and loving towards all of His cre- creatures, all human beings. I need. It's only when I'm connected to God, though, that I can see people as God truly sees them and feel for them what God feels for them. And linked to that, thirdly, I think we can say that Jonah was self-righteous. The reason that he was indifferent to the needs of these Assyrians was because of his own self-righteousness. He felt that he was superior to them. So at this point in the book, we're not actually told why Jonah ran away. We suspect it may be out of fear, but when we get to the end of the book, Jonah himself tells us, he says to God in chapter 4, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah didn't think that these Assyrians were worthy of God's grace, but he thought that he was worthy of God's grace. He thought that they were a lot worse than he was. And it's so easy for us to look at the news and think about those evil people out there and forget that that same evil lives within me. Remember Alexander Solzhenitsyn writing and saying, if, if only it was so easy, if only there were evil people out there that need to be removed from the rest of us. But it's not like that. The line between good and evil runs down every human heart, and who can cut out a piece of his own heart? We need to remember that the ground is level at the cross. And if we're worried about murderers and rapists out there, we need to hear God's word to us again. Anyone who's lusted has committed adultery. Anyone who's angry with his brother is a murderer. I think that's why you have those curious words in the middle of Psalm 139. The psalmist sort of spoils the psalm for us. He says, if only you would slay the wicked, O God, away from me, you bloodthirsty men. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? And then he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting One of the reasons that we fail to reach out to others is because we think that we're superior to them. Perhaps if we've been in church for a while and we've managed to avoid some of the so-called greater sins, we begin to think that actually we're pretty good candidates for God. We're good recipients of the salvation he offers. But the reality is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Fourthly, in Jonah's life, we find spiritual apathy. I think that's what's being described in verses 4 and 5. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own god. and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. This wasn't a peaceful sleep. (laughs) I'm sure that many of us know the desire to escape reality through sleep, if even for a little while. Here you've got this tremendous storm that's going on. All the pagan sailors are terrified. They're crying out to their gods. And Jonah, the prophet of God, falls asleep. And I think sleep here is a good metaphor for spiritual indifference. That's why several times in the New Testament we are told to wake up and to be alert. We're not to be those uh, who sleep, and because as Paul says, those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who drunk be, get drunk at night. He says, wake up, uh, wake up to the reality of God. So ignoring God's word, indifference to the needs of others, self-righteousness, and spiritual apathy all lead Jonah in time to the point of deliberate disobedience. God said go, and Jonah said no, verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord. Just think about that for a moment. Think about the insanity of trying to run from God. Going back to Psalm 139 for a moment. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. We can't hide from God. I think some of us, like Jonah, make a deliberate decision to go the opposite of God's way. But for others, we don't necessarily deliberately set out for Tarshish we kind of just drift in that direction. By not closely following God and seeking His will, we end up in Tarshish. I always remember reading the autobiography of Claire Rayner, the British journalist and broadcaster, and her autobiography was entitled, How Did I Get Here From There? And Sometimes we experience that in our own lives. It's just a spiritual drift that leads us far from God. So this morning it's well worth just asking ourselves, as we come to a moment of prayer, am I running from God? Am I someone who is ignoring God's word, indifferent to the needs of others, disobedient to God's call, spiritually apathetic, and do I need to return to God? How do we return? Well. We'll look at this later in the book. But as we've said, if sin is running from God, then grace is God chasing after us. And God's ability to seek us and to find us is always greater than our ability to get lost. If this morning we've realized that we're running from God or that we're drifting from God, there are two very simple Bible prayers that we can use this morning. Both are found in Psalm 119. Just sentence prayers, but extremely powerful if prayed from a genuinely repentant heart. Firstly, in Psalm, in verse 176, the psalmist prays, I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. Such a powerful prayer. Lord, I'm lost and I can't even have the strength to seek after you. Won't you seek after me? I've strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. And in verse 94, he prays, Save me, for I am yours. It's a lovely prayer. Lord, I am yours. Please save me. Those are sincere prayers that God will always answer, yes. John Newton discovered this. John Newton was a captain of a slave trip Uh, On one particular trip, he set off on a slave ship, leaving from Africa with a cargo of slaves. He was an experienced sailor and navigator. His cursing and blaspheming on that ship embarrassed his fellow sailors. You've got to be pretty bad to embarrass sailors. Halfway across the Atlantic, the ship was caught in a terrible storm and began taking on water. The crew had to pump 24 hours a day to stay afloat. The sailors had to tie themselves to the deck to keep from being swept overboard. At one point several of the crew considered throwing Newton overboard because they thought that, the, that Newton was a little bit like Jonah and had caused the storm. Eventually the captain decided that the only way they could survive the storm would be through God's prayer or through God's power and so he commanded everyone on board to pray including John Newton. And so John Newton prayed. He said, "God, if you're true, make good your word. Cleanse my vile heart. After four weeks of storms and many brushes with death, the ship finally made it into an Irish port. And John Newton, the free thinker, the slave trader, the atheist, declared his faith in Jesus. He became a well-known preacher, and writer, and hymn writer. His most famous hymn, of course, is the most famous hymn of all time. Amazing grace. You can still see John Newton's grave today, and on the grave is this epitaph, which he composed himself. It says this, John Newton, Clark, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. John Newton turned back to God. How about you?